0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Women in the Word. Thanks so much for joining us online. What a privilege it is to be able to continue to gather together this way and study God's Word even in this unsettling time that we're experiencing. And now, perhaps more than ever, what a privilege it is to have God's Word directing us, guiding us, holding us close, reminding us that our God is sovereign over every single thing that happens on this earth. Our God reigns, and that is a comfort for me. My name's Amy Foster. It's my privilege to be on the teaching team, and it's my privilege to be learning and growing with you every single week at Women in the Word. If you're disappointed that this is our last Women in the Word for the spring, don't be disappointed. We've prepared a summer study for you. We'll have a five week study called Steady Love, God's Glue for Broken People. And we'll be looking at five great Old Testament stories. We'll send you information by email about how to uh, connect with us for that summer study. Well, well done to all of you for finishing this study of Revelation with us. I know we've read through some unsettling material in this study. We've seen the judgment of God and, and some of us have felt pretty uncomfortable with that. It reminded me years ago, uh, one of my young sons, he was just eight years old, and he came down with what looked like a typical stomach bug. I sat up with him all night long and slowly began to realize this was no normal stomach bug. I took him to the emergency room in the hospital, and we had a sonogram that revealed a ruptured appendix. And the sweet technician was speaking to me in kind of code language, not wanting to unsettle my young child, letting me know what was ahead. Well, my son was too smart for her. As soon as she left the room, he looked at me with panic in his eyes and said, Not an operation, Mom. I don't want an operation. And the truth was, I didn't want an operation for my little boy either. But I wanted a little boy who was healthy and whole. So we readied him for surgery, and in a strange, unfortunate series of events, both our surgery and our surgeon kept getting postponed. More pressing, more emergent things were coming in ahead of us. Three times our surgery was delayed, and during those hours of delay, my son's discomfort increased tremendously, and we could actually see his abdomen beginning to swell up as that threatening infection spread through his body. He was miserable. When they finally came in hours later and said it was time to go to surgery, I looked in his little face to see if he was afraid. Are you ready? And he clenched his teeth and he grit his jaw and he said, bring it, bring it. Those hours of being uncomfortable and feeling that toxic illness spread through his body had changed him completely. Instead of being afraid of the cure, he was anxious. He was ready for it. He knew it was necessary to bring healing in life. And I don't know about you, but that's sort of how I've moved through the book of Revelation. We've seen all through it the mercy of God offering to cover our disobedient sin natures. And we've seen people in rebellion rejecting God and spurning his grace. We've seen Satan unrestrained, uh, deceiving the whole world until the sovereign God of the universe says enough. And he does the necessary surgery to eradicate sin and evil and Satan and death and all toxic influence from his creation for all time. And God doesn't stop then. That looks very severe, but fortunately God doesn't stop. He creates a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem, where God's people will dwell with him in his presence, free from sin's influence forever. And I say, bring it also. The verses we're going to read today are an epilogue, and they truly are the last words from God about his program for humankind. This is John's experience after receiving the incredible vision. He's just seen the new heaven, the new earth and the New Jerusalem. And it reads a little bit like a conversation. It's going to look like the angel and John are talking, Jesus and John is talking, and it's going to close with John's beautiful prayer about all of it. So begin reading with me, Revelation chapter 22. We'll pick up in verse six. And this is the angel speaking. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place." So this is the angel telling John that all of the prophecy in this book, every single thing we've read, it's trustworthy and it's true. And that means it's worthy of confidence and it's totally accurate. So the words are trustworthy and true because they are Jesus' words, they're from the Lord. And we've been saying over all these weeks, all prophecy is designed to reveal Jesus. And here the angel's letting us know that Jesus is actually the author of this prophecy. So it makes me consider who's better qualified to tell us about Jesus and Jesus' plan for the world than Jesus himself. So the nature of the entire message of Revelation is that it's trustworthy, it's true, and also that it is urgent. It talks about the things that must soon take place, But soon doesn't mean in the next few minutes. Soon actually means what's necessary to do quickly, just like an emergency surgery. It's necessary to happen for healing and life to occur. And then the angel shares Jesus' beautiful words. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. All right, ladies, you can't read through this chapter and not recognize the theme of the entire book of Revelation. Jesus is coming back. He repeats it three times here and he's coming back, bringing blessing and judgment. And so that tells me right away that the the application for us is to choose blessing. Jesus is coming back. We need to choose blessing. Maybe you've heard before that the book of Revelation is a book about judgment. Maybe you believed that before we started studying it together, but that's not true. This is a book about blessing. There are more promises about blessing in the book of Revelation than any other book in the Bible. And if you think back to our very first week, Revelation chapter 1, verse three began with a blessing. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it for the time is near. There are seven major blessing passages in the book, and the first one we just read from chapter one. Today, we're going to cover the sixth and the seventh. And the blessing is always for those who hear, which doesn't just mean the person whose ears comprehend the sound, it means the person who takes it to heart, the person who believes it and heeds the warning. There is a blessing for that person. Blessed, as God uses the word here, means to cause to prosper. Um, to make happy. It's the idea of to to associate with the highest good. So I think God's blessing means it's the very best that can be done for humankind. It's the highest that can be done here. And that is God's purpose all along and why God sent Jesus to us. John three seventeen reminds us, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. I would paraphrase that. Whoever believes is blessed. And Revelation is a book of blessing. All right, continue reading with me. We're gonna pick up in verse eight. The angel isn't speaking, now it's John speaking as an eyewitness. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. And then he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy." All right, John is speaking, us, speaking, letting us know he's an eyewitness. And in response to everything that he has seen and heard, he is overwhelmed and awestruck. And once again, he falls down at the feet of this angel and he begins to worship the messenger no 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 john is corrected one more time reminded that the angel just like john just like the prophets just like you and just like me he's a servant of god we're all servants of god and god alone gets our worship so we can see that the purpose of the message is not for john to worship the messenger the purpose here is for john to write it down Write the words down, John, because it warns of something that's going to come suddenly and quickly, and people need to know it's coming. Now, the language is a little bit tricky here as it explains the necessity of this warning. John's really talking about um, human condition, and he's comparing the righteous with the unrighteous or the evil. Um, But what we always need to acknowledge is truly only God and Jesus are righteous. So when God's followers are called righteous, it doesn't mean we're holy, it means we're in right standing with God. And what we see here is John is letting us know there are always two kinds of people. There are those who have put their faith in God and Jesus, And they are trying to please God and Jesus with their life. That's right standing with God. And there are those who have not put their faith in God and Jesus, but have rejected them. They're pursuing their own desires. And those are the same two choices that every human being has encountered from the beginning of time. And what we're learning here is during this time of grace, you can change your mind. You can be an unrighteous person moving along in unrighteous ways, and you can turn to God and repent. But there will come a day when you can't change your mind. There will come a day when the door to grace will be open and it will come suddenly. And that unrighteous, evil behavior that you've been pursuing will become your permanent identity. And you will become a rebel towards God forever. That's why the warning is so necessary here. And we see in these words, only right standing with God, the only way we can come to that is standing under the cross of Jesus as his servant that's where john is it reminds me of acts 412 that says salvation is found in no one else for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved so we see here that these words are written as a gracious warning from a god who truly desires to bless next we have jesus talking This is the best part of this chapter. I'd say if you're one to mark up your Bibles, get your pencil out and put a parentheses around verses 12 to 16. And I don't know if any of you have struggled with the book of Revelation. Maybe you've been confused by trumpets and seals and bowls and years of millennium and years of tribulation. If you don't remember anything else about this book, I want you to remember these four verses. Begin reading with me in verse 12. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. So Jesus, who we've already been reminded, is always trustworthy and true. He uh, repeats a promise he's made regularly here. And the promise is, I am coming soon. But he also lets us know he's coming with recompense. And recompense means he's coming with wages and he's coming with rewards. Now, you may remember about two weeks ago in chapter 20, we talked about all the unrighteous being resurrected, resurrected from graves, from the sea, the ocean, from everywhere. And they would all stand before the white throne judgment where their lives would be evaluated based on their deeds, their actions, the works of their lives. And under that judgment, no one will be able to stand. All will be condemned by the Lord. Those are Jesus' wages for the sinful. Romans 6.23 warns everyone, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So that's part of the recompense that Jesus is bringing with him. But he's also coming with rewards, and the rewards will be for Jesus' faithful followers. This is a reference here to the judgment seat of Christ. This is a moment where all of Jesus' true followers will stand before him, and we too will have our lives completely evaluated. But we won't be evaluated for condemnation or judgment. We'll be evaluated for rewards. Most likely, this is going to happen immediately after the rapture of believers. 2 Corinthians 5.10 describes this. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So we pull together several references from the New Testament that help us have a fuller understanding of the judgment seat of Christ. If you want to look at this a little more, you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians 5. You can look at Matthew 6. But basically this is an experience where all the good works we do in our lives, these are the works that are fueled by the Holy Spirit and they are done with a desire to glorify and honor God. These works will be called out and they will be rewarded by Jesus. And then the works that we did outside of God's good purposes, um, those things will be burned up like fire. Matthew 6 gives us a great warning and a better understanding of this, letting us know if we're doing our good works for the praise or the commendation of men, there won't be a reward for that. But the things that we do from the purest motive of pleasing God, he tells us your Father who sees in secret will reward you. You may remember the first time we saw the throne room back in Revelation chapter four, the 24 elders were there and they were taking their crowns of gold and casting them there before the throne in worship. Many believe that those crowns of gold are part of the reward that the followers have received from Jesus. And that's really a beautiful idea, isn't it? That the good works we do in this life, they bring God glory and honor right here and right now. And then we take them into heaven with us and we get a reward for them so that we can give God glory and honor again in heaven. It's really a beautiful picture. And then Jesus moves on from this and he gives us this very succinct testimony and he's really explaining to us why he has authority to be the one to come with judgment and reward. He calls himself here the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. And he's really letting us know he is the eternal sovereign king. So let's take a little bit of time and understand that. Alpha and Omega, these are the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. So that's a little bit like saying Jesus is from A to Z. As the Alpha, the first, the beginning, we know that Jesus was eternally existent with God. He was present with God before creation. We know this because in Genesis chapter one, God spoke these words, "'Let us make man in our image.'" Well, who was God talking to? He was talking to Jesus because he was there. Colossians 1 16 gives us the same idea. "'For by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So as Alpha, Jesus was before all things and the creative source of all things. But what about as Omega, the last? We just read last week that the old heaven and the old earth rolled away and Jesus is left reigning. He is there after all things have passed away. We have this picture of Jesus as the summation of all things. He is the one who finishes all the work that was started. He finishes the work of creation. He finishes the work of redemption. He finishes the work of judging and conquering sin and Satan for all times. And in the end, Jesus is reigning on a throne. He is the eternal Lord. If you think about this whole book, your Bibles, The whole book is God's story of his interaction with all of humankind. And that interaction reaches its completion in all the events of Revelation. This is the summation of God's plan for all kind, and Jesus is the one who brings it about. Just consider with me, in Genesis, God created the world. But in Revelation, God creates a new heaven and a new earth. In Genesis, Satan introduces sin for the first time. Humanity falls into the sin and we are all subject to a curse. But in Revelation, we see Satan completely destroyed and defeated. Sin is done away with and the curse is removed forever. In Genesis, people are cast out of the garden. They're separated from the perfect presence of God and they live with tears and sorrow. But in Revelation, people live in God's presence forever. He wipes away all tears. He removes every sorrow. And in Genesis, people are barred from the tree of life and death is everyone's experience. But in Revelation, we have access and freedom to eat from the tree of life and death is completely done away with. Jesus finishes the work. That's why he gets to judge and reward. That's why he is known as the Alpha and the Omega. So Jesus is coming back and he's coming with recompense. His recompense will look a little like this. Some will be welcomed into the presence of God forever and some will be banished from the presence of God forever. This is the seventh blessing here. Blessed are those who've washed their robes. And we just need to stop for a minute and point out Jesus is using visual imagery here to make his point. These aren't all literal things and literal names that he's using. When he says, blessed are those who've washed their robes, that means blessed are those who have found forgiveness for their sins. And we know that forgiveness comes to us from faith in Jesus. Those who've trusted in Jesus' work on the cross. And he says, they are free to enter the city by the gates. So Jesus is using a well-known and everyday experience to explain something heavenly and eternal. We know that ancient cities were surrounded by strong, tall walls and the walls had large openings or gates. We know the gates would be guarded by day and they would be locked up tight at night. And that meant no one came through the gates without authority or permission. You had to be qualified to enter the gates. You had to be qualified to be in the cities. And so what Jesus is saying here is all those who have been forgiven by Jesus, they can enter the city. And inside those city gates, they have intimate fellowship with God. They have access to the tree of life, which that's talking about eternal life there. And this is just a delightful picture of God's favor. And I think you could summarize this whole image with one word included, included in the presence and blessing of God. And the people who are included, their identity, their citizenship, it comes from Jesus. He's the one who's washed them and given them access. But for the others, Jesus' recompense looks a little different. They are outside the city gates. They're disqualified from entering. There is no sneaking over the walls for them. They are separated from God's presence. They're referred to here as dogs and sorcerers, and that's a metaphor. It's been used other times in the Bible. And that means these are people who haven't been forgiven. Therefore they are sinful and they are immoral and they are characterized by their wicked works. So when it refers to them as murderers and idolaters who are cast out, that doesn't mean only murderers are cast out of God's presence. It simply means these people are identified by their sinful behavior and they have never participated with God's grace and they will never enter God's presence. So their identity comes from their sin. And I think you can summarize this tragic picture with one word and that word is excluded, excluded from the presence of God. Now, Jesus' words here conclude with one more reminder, and it's really a double reminder of his credibility. He says, I, Jesus, in case we've forgotten who's speaking to us here, I, Jesus, send these words to you for the churches. A reminder to all of us, these are Jesus' words about God's plan for all time for the people who Jesus gathers together, forgives, and calls his church. The eternal king from the kingly line would be the one to announce the bright new day. And he would announce it more brilliantly than the bright morning star. So what Jesus has done in these four verses is he has summarized the greatest plan, the greatest invitation of all time. And he's encouraged us, choose blessing, choose blessing and live in the presence of God for eternity. But his plan comes as an invitation, not a command. It's an invitation that we all receive. All people must choose for themselves. And then we go into a little passage here where we see some of the responses to Jesus' beautiful invitation. Verse 17 says, "'The Spirit and the bride say, come.'" All right, we've talked about this before. In this instance, the bride means the church, that's us. All of us, since the day of Pentecost, who have believed in Jesus, we are assured of our security with him. And so this says our response to Jesus' message is we join the Holy Spirit. The the great work of the Holy Spirit in the world today is to encourage people, come to Jesus, come to Jesus. And that's what we do here. We turn towards the world and we say, come, come receive blessing. This is Jesus' call on our lives if we are his. And I want to remind each one of you, and I want to remind me, he calls me his servant. And if I'm his servant, that means I'm about his business, not mine. And we see right here his business is calling people to him. So that's what it means when it says we say come. Another response, it says, let the one who hears say come. Meaning if someone hears this message of revelation for the very first time and they immediately believe, they are welcomed into God's presence, they receive his blessing, and then the call of their life is also to turn towards the world and say, come, come to Jesus, come to blessing. It says, let the one who is thirsty come, take the water of life without price. You know, all through the scriptures, thirst is used to describe our spiritual need. Thirst is, shows us a picture of a soul that is parched by sin in need of refreshment that can only come from God. And all through the New Testament, Jesus describes himself as the one who gives living water. And he always says that he gives it freely. John 6.35 says, Whoever believes in me shall never thirst, Those are Jesus' earlier words. And I can't think about this idea of thirst here without seeing God's mercy in so many of the judgments that we've seen in the book of Revelation. How many of them limited or destroyed the drinkable water? And we know one was followed by a judgment that caused scorching heat from the sun that made everyone excessively thirsty. I think God let people, he will let people experience The most profound thirst the world has ever known after he's given them Jesus' words. And Jesus' words must be ringing in the air. Come to me if you're thirsty. Are you thirsty? I'll give you living water, free forever. The invitation of Jesus is offered to everyone. Here is the resounding message of the book. Come to Jesus. Now is the day of grace. From the beginning of life on this earth, every generation has had an invitation from God. Recognize your thirst, your spiritual need, respond to God's plan to meet your spiritual need. But the invitation has an expiration date. It's like RSVP by this date. We don't know exactly what that moment will be, but when Jesus comes back, the invitation of grace will be closed. Some will have declined and refused the blessing of God throughout their life, and they will no longer have the opportunity to step into grace. The last response that we see in these verses, this is the response to the invitation to grace that Jesus has shown everyone. It's a response, but it also comes with a severe warning. Read with me in verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Now, your Bible might not be using red letters here that communicate Jesus' words, But so many of the commentators I read stated their personal belief that they think this is Jesus speaking, this warning here. And that makes a lot of sense to me because this warning is spoken with great authority, isn't it? It says don't add to these prophetic words. Don't take away from any of these prophetic words. And, you know, all through the Bible, beginning in Deuteronomy, we get this warning. Don't alter the words of God don't alter them. To alter God's word is the same thing as rejecting God. And maybe you're thinking, oh my goodness, nobody would ever do that. Nobody would ever alter the words that we've heard in Revelation. You know, when I was eight years old, my best friend used to say to me, a loving God won't send anyone to hell. That's what they told me at my church. I'm sorry, that's an alteration of the words that we have just read here. And I've been hearing that one since I was eight years old. Last week, I heard a man interviewed on NPR, and he said, Eternal punishment cannot be possible because it violates man's sense of fairness. Again, that's an alteration of the words of God that we've read in Revelation. I've been hearing these kind of alterations my whole life. You probably have too. The warning that we have here is there will be a great consequence and a great judgment if we alter these words. Some will choose to alter these words because they have blatant unbelief in God and their punishment will be exclusion from the presence and the blessing of God forever. I certainly think it's possible that some people will alter these words out of ignorance or error. Perhaps they are God followers, but they are mistaken here. Um, Their salvation is secure, but we certainly know there will be no reward in heaven for that kind of an alteration here. God knows our will. He knows our hearts. He will deal with every human being accordingly if they have altered his words here. And in light of this stern warning, I don't want you to forget the promise that came to us in chapter 1. Blessed are those who heed these words. So there is a blessing if you heed the words, and there is a judgment if you alter the words. But God gives you the choice. Let's read verse 20. One more time, Jesus. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. One more time, Jesus repeats his promise. I'm coming soon. I think he repeats it here after we've seen all the different responses that people will have, because he's saying, whether you're ready or not, whether you believe me or not, whether you change my words or not, I am coming soon. I'm still coming. Soon means it will happen swiftly. It will happen speedily in a moment, like an emergency surgery. And when it does, the invitation to grace will be closed. All that's left here is John's prayerful response. Amen, come Lord Jesus. You know, so many times in this revelation, we have seen John fall down in worship. It is hard for me to imagine he's at this moment and he's still standing. I think surely he's praying this prayer on his knees. He just utters amen, which means let it be, truly. Or, to quote my eight-year-old, bring it. Bring it, Lord. Let it be. Bring the frightening stuff, the difficult stuff, like surgery to purge the world of sin, death, Satan, and hell for all times. Bring the work that puts Christ on the throne for all to see, for every knee to bow before. It's necessary and good to bless and heal the world." When John says, "'Come, Lord Jesus,' this is simply my opinion, but I think John is calling and praying for the rapture of the church in that moment, the unique and glorious moment in the future when Christ will descend and he will call all of his followers to be with him forever. And we believe that that happens before any of the judgments, the trumpets, the seals, and the bowls occur. First Thessalonians four sixteen describes this: For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. When I think that uh, John is talking about the rapture here, I'm reminded that John knew sweet personal relationship with Jesus as Jesus walked on the earth. John knew glorious personal relationship with Jesus in the 40 days that Jesus remained after his resurrection. John stood with the disciples and heard Jesus say these words, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. The fellowship John had known with Jesus on this earth was beautiful, but it would pale in comparison to the fellowship he would know with Jesus in heaven when sin's presence was eliminated. And then we get John's benediction like a good pastor He ends with, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. That's the ending to this message of Revelation. And yes, there's a lot of judgment in this message. But I want to point out grace gets the last word here. Grace opened it all and grace closes it all. God's grace is what makes the plan of God for mankind possible. It comes from God's generous nature, which gives freely what none of us can earn and what none of us deserves. We all deserve the wages for our sin. But grace has offered to forgive our sins because of the sacrifice of Jesus. And grace has offered to cover us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, the King. This is the end of God's communication to mankind about his plan, and the final words are reminders of God's grace. Ephesians 2.8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so no one can boast. So how do we each respond to this revelation of Jesus and this message? Clearly, in faith, we choose blessing. Choose blessing in the presence of God forever. If you have not yet stepped into the invitation of grace, do so right now while there's time. The invitation is open to you. All that's required is that you believe in the person and the work of Jesus. God reminds us John 3 16 that it began with his love for he so loved the world he gave his son and whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. For those of us who've already made that decision, we are Christ's church. And we've seen two very clear examples of things we can do here for the rest of our lives as members of Christ's church. I think just like John, we say, come Lord Jesus. We lift our hands high to heaven and say, come Lord Jesus. We live our lives today longing for Christ's return. Now, I'll just admit to you, I have not always longed for Christ's return quite that way. I came to know Jesus when I was a little bitty girl, but I remember, remember so many times as a teenager and a young woman thinking, oh, I hope I get to get married before Jesus comes back. I hope I have children before Jesus comes back. And I have one little friend from high school. He used to always say this somewhat bashfully. I hope I get a honeymoon before Jesus comes back. And that seems silly, we can laugh at that. But the truth is there's some of that in all of us. I think we live in the most affluent country in the world and we live in one of the most affluent times in history. We have so many blessings in our lives. Even in the middle of a pandemic, we have blessings. And I think because of that, we can start to think that this life is heaven and we don't wanna miss out on any of it. Ladies, don't let the glittery blessings of this life dim the brilliant splendor of eternity. I have to remind myself sometimes that this life isn't heaven. The way I do that, I remember that in heaven, God will get nonstop glory, and that doesn't happen here. Every time I choose to be disobedient, I choose to be dishonest or envious. God is robbed of glory. Anytime someone lies, God's robbed of glory. Anytime someone does something to oppress or marginalize god's robbed of glory even when someone sees their brand new home renovation and all they can do is exclaim god's name in vain god is robbed of glory if we can start paying attention to god's glory we'll see how anemic this world really is and it will help us long for heaven the other thing i remind myself just like john In heaven, I will have a relationship with God and Jesus like I can only imagine. The most wonderful experiences I've had with Jesus now, my mountaintop highs will pale in comparison to living with him without the effects of sin. So I can long for that. The other thing we see in John here that we can do today is we can live with our arms outstretched to the world, to the whole world, inviting them to believe in Jesus. Ladies, every person you will ever meet is made in the image of God with a soul that is eternal. If we can remember to look at people like that, then our whole life can be an invitation, encouraging people to come to Jesus. There is a man who lives in another part of the world. He's a real person, not a legend. He lives in a country that's not particularly friendly to Christianity, and he spent his life practicing another religion— until God started doing something interesting. Every day, God started interrupting his daily prayer time with a vision. And in this vision, this gentleman saw a big white statue of a man in long robes, holding his arm out in invitation. And I've got a slide of that statue to show you today. This is a real statue. It's located in Brazil. The man seeing this vision had never been to Brazil. This is called Christ the Redeemer. Jesus was interrupting this man's prayer time every single day with a vision of invitation, inviting him into blessing and grace. And after a few days, this gentleman put his faith in Jesus, but he didn't stop there. He determined that he would live in his world, just like Jesus, with his arms outstretched, inviting people in to blessing and grace and a relationship with God. And there is a great risk to this gentleman for living this way but today in the area where he lives there are dozens and dozens of christian communities new christian communities and they trace their beginning all back to the day somebody met this man in their neighborhood who was living his life with his arms outstretched inviting people to jesus that's how we're supposed to live i want to show you another picture of this statue but this one, I want you to pay attention to how the statue sits so prominently over the city. This is Rio de Janeiro. It's one of the largest cities in the world. And Christ the Redeemer has his arms stretched out over that whole city. That is an image of how we can live today, extending the invitation of Jesus to all. John recorded this message during the time of grace, and we still live in the time of grace today. And that means today there's time for people to change their mind and turn to Jesus. But someone has to tell them. Someone perhaps has to demonstrate it, give them a real-life example to help them believe that it's true, that someone can be you and it can be me. Today, we are waiting for God to bring it just like John. We're waiting for God to do the necessary work of banishing Satan and death and sin and hell for all time. And honestly, while we live in this day of grace, Satan still has some freedom and he has some power, and we experience that. But to quote the beautiful song, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck us from his hand until he returns or calls us home Here in the power of Christ, we stand. These words encourage us to stand with our arms lifted high, longing for Jesus to return, and to stand with our arms outstretched, inviting the world to join him. Jesus is coming back. Let's pray. God, you are so merciful, and we thank you for your grace and your love We thank you for the invitation to live life with you. Lord, I just pray that we would all live each day recognizing how blessed we already are and long for the day that we can be with you forever. I pray that you would help us live as your invitation in the world. I pray that we would handle your word correctly and beautifully and extend your invitation of grace to everyone. Help us do that and come Lord Jesus. Amen.